Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Last week, we heard part of Jesus delivering his Sermon on the Mount. The passage started with Jesus saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I guess it's good I repeated it for you guys in the, when I misread the gospel this morning. But anyway, so what is the law of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, it's the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, the first five books of the Bible. And indeed, we think of this extensive law code as pharisaical, right? It's got all these detailed laws. Some of them are very harsh sounding to our ears in our modern era. But yet, in Deuteronomy, the law is summarized in just two sentences. And Jesus quotes those sentences when he's summarizing the law to someone coming to him to ask a question. And we quote Jesus on this very point every week in our liturgy. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus didn't make that up. Well, I guess he did in the first place, but he didn't. It was already there in the Hebrew Scriptures. We also hear Jesus say that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet, last week, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus appears to deliver a new law in a series of statements following the pattern, you have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. For example, last week, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Reader Stephen brilliantly pointed out that Jesus doesn't say someone said, or God said, or I said of old, since after all, the word of God delivered the law to Moses, I would have been completely appropriate. But instead he said, you have heard it was said. That means you heard something. You heard something that your mind was willing to hear. You heard me say something the first time. But I'm going to say it again, because now you're ready to hear it, hear it more deeply, ready to see what I actually was trying to tell you thousands of years ago, but now in its fullness. We see that this new law, or shall we say a deeper understanding of the law, focuses on what's going on in our heart. Wishing, just wishing, our neighbor is dead is murder. Lusting after our neighbor's wife is adultery, etc. This was what the scribes and Pharisees lacked, as Jesus would say to them over and over and over again. You have the external appearance, but inside you're dead. We get a hint of the importance of the heart in the 10th commandment, the prohibition against coveting, wanting something you don't have. That's a crime of the heart, a very serious one indeed. 
And anyone who tells you that the Ten Commandments are just like any other ancient law code are seriously mistaken. I like to point this one out every time they say that. The Ten Commandments have the only thought crime that I know of. We don't even have thought crimes in our law. The only, body, only person who can enforce that commandment is God. So God had written this key principle on those tablets of, uh, on those tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. But over time, and in the rest of the law, the Israelites weren't really at the stage to hear it. And let's remember that an eye for an eye was mercy at the time the law was made compared to the excessively imbalanced responses like murdering a whole clan for one man's crime that was prevalent at the time. So now we're thousands of years later and Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount and he's telling those people that you're ready to hear what I wanted you to hear back then. And the need for and the challenge of transforming the heart is encapsulated in the young man who comes to Jesus asking, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And in that story, Jesus says to the man, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And when the man asks which, Jesus just starts rattling off the Ten Commandments. And the man responds, I, I've kept all those. What do I still lack? And Jesus tacitly acknowledging that indeed, apparently this man had kept the Ten Commandments, says to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus says, in so many words, to be perfect, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says in so many words to that rich young man, what I like to call the platinum rule, do unto others as God does to others. God gives it all, everything, even his own son over to death in order that the poor, not just in monetary terms, but in spiritual terms will be saved. But likely when I tell you that you and I are held to a higher standard as Christians, then even the Pharisees, you may begin to feel like the rich young man. It's not easy to hear that you don't just have to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but also host the living spirit of God in your heart, feed on the very divine in the Eucharist, and to love your neighbor as God loves them. And perhaps it seems so impossible that you might leave here feeling sorrowful that that, like that rich young man. And yet our calling is for us to constantly become more like God. Indeed, we are to work with God to restore ourselves to the likeness of God bestowed upon us by God in the creation. It's a tall task and it can seem daunting. I feel like I'm starting over all too frequently. But if I'm really honest, those start overs are almost always at least a few steps closer to God than I was when I started. So if you feel that way too, don't despair and don't lose sight of the goal to become nothing less than God himself. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying we literally become God. We don't. We can't become God by nature. God's God and we're something else. But instead, we can, by God's grace, as St. Peter says in his second epistle, fully partake in the divine nature. We can partake of it by grace. But just as we couldn't hear all the words on Sinai, we're still struggling to accept the fullness of God. It seems an impossible task. 
but with God, all things are possible. Indeed, right after Jesus speaks with this rich young man, he delivers his response, the disciples ask him, well, then who can be saved? Not skipping a beat, he looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We must give up any sense that we ourselves alone can achieve this. It's a certain way to fail. Instead, we have to trust in God, cooperate with his will. And if we are willing to truly follow him, he's already chasing after us. He was not satisfied with walking with us in the garden. Again, despite all of our disobedience, all the trouble we get ourselves into, he pursues us, he chases us. Not just so that he could walk in the garden again with us, but really walk in us and we in him in the here and now and for eternity. So that brings us to today's lectionary gospel, where we hear another story of something that our narrow minds would say was impossible. Feeding 4,000 people in the wilderness with seven loaves and a few small fishes. And in fact, we hear an echo of the disciples' question to Jesus after he spoke with the rich young men. The disciples ask, how can one, that is, how can any man, any person, feed these men with bread here in the desert? Well, they can't. And this time Jesus does not answer with words, but with actions. With God, anything is possible. In fact, this story is here in St. Matthew's Gospel, just after the new law that we were talking about in the Sermon on the Mount was delivered, because it parallels the Exodus. After Sinai, on the mountain, the people then wander in the wilderness and are fed by God. Here again, people are fed by God in the wilderness. But the differences between these two stories are even more revealing. In Exodus 16, when the parallel sequence of event is described in the Old Testament, the people are murmuring against Moses and Aaron, and the Lord himself saying, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. Here in the feeding of the 4,000, the people are not murmuring. They're not saying they are hungry. Instead, they've been feasting on the words of Jesus, the word of God. Just as we're commanded not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Unlike the Israelites, they chose freely to come out into the desert and listen to Jesus. In contrast to reluctantly following Moses, who finally riled up Pharaoh enough to let them go. Yet God recognizes and he promises us that being human beings, we need physical sustenance too. But the 4,000 in the wilderness show the right priority. You need both, but you got to get your, your priorities straight. They trust in God and worry about their spiritual well-being first before their physical. In contrast, the Israelites were too busy worrying about their physical well-being to recognize the salvation that God had brought them. Moreover, God feeds the people not only with bread, but with fish, paralleling another episode uh, from their time in the desert in Numbers 11, where the people aren't satisfied with the manna. They're not satisfied with the bread of God given to them freely in the desert, and they start to complain again, oh, that we had meat to eat. 
comparing yet again in this their current phys- being really worried about their physical situation and comparing their their current plight to their prior life in Egypt. And here in the feeding of the 4000 not only does God give the people bread but fish to eat when they haven't even asked for it. And finally most of the crowd is probably gentile. I surmise this, and I'm not alone in that, because this event happens, uh, it says, but right before the gospel reading starts in the region of Decapolis, where Jesus had just healed a deaf mute. And so this probably was, ta- this was taking place in Gentile lands, and probably many of the people in the desert were Gentiles. The Jews had been instead chosen by God. They had every manner of spiritual wonders offered to them by God, but they were more worried about their physical well-being. Here the Gentiles were hungry, hungry for God, hungry for the gospel instead of their physical well-being. And this isn't meant to be a Jew versus Gentile thing. It's just meant to tell us that this message isn't delivered to some certain people, but it's for all humankind. So are we listening or are we only hearing what we want to hear? How many of us put our secular concerns first, saying we don't have time for prayer, don't have time to read the Bible, don't have time to come to church to worship God, and no time for being good to our neighbors. Yet we all know we have time for what's important to us. And I'm not arguing that you neglect your kids, quit your job, etc. There are monasteries for that. And we cannot and should not all be monks. I've already acknowledged that we all have physical needs. We need a job and we've got to buy some food. But I've also acknowledged that God knows that we need those things. And so I'm merely arguing for an ordering of your life that aligns with what you really care about. So how can you put God first in your life this week? How can or what can you do to show that you trust in God more than your stuff? And one way is to risk some of your stuff, like Jesus asked that young rich man to do. That's one way to become perfect. What physical pleasure that perhaps, let's admit, might be sinful, can you give up this week to feed instead on something holy, perfect? What can point us in the right direction? What can put us on the way that Stephen told us was what Christians were first called. What can align ourselves with that way? What, with all the terrible forces around us in the world, trying to pull us in every direction, how can we help our compasses align with the will of God and follow what may be a meandering path closer to him each and every day? Sometimes it may seem impossible. But today's gospel reminds us that the seemingly impossible is possible when we put God first, when we feast on the word of God instead of our earthly desires. When we do, God will provide abundance. Our cup will runneth over, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And in case you think I'm up here preaching some prosperity gospel, I am certainly not. I will remind you that the abundance in our gospel passage was just enough that everyone was satisfied. Not that they stuffed themselves and stored up the baskets for later. 
Yet when God does grant his abundance, as he has spiritually, and even in the context of the world economy to all of us materialistically as well, let us be good stewards of that. Let us share it with the poor, as he commands that young rich man to do. Then we'll be like God himself, withholding nothing. And as I constantly remind you, my brothers and sisters, poor doesn't just mean that homeless man or woman on the street. All of us are poor, often more so in spirit than in riches. We have to feed the people around us and let God multiply it. We should not worry what people will do with what we give. For as we know, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We should do the same. Or as Walter Hooper recalled, as he and his friend C.S. Lewis walked to an Inklings meeting, Lewis gave some money to a street beggar and Hooper made his usual objection. Won't he just spend it on drink? And Lewis answered, yes, but if I had kept it, so would I. When we give freely our worldly and spiritual possessions, of our worldly and spiritual possessions, we not only show our love for our neighbor, but our love for God and ourselves. And again, our neighbor doesn't mean that person in the house next door. It means everybody that we are around every day, our coworkers, our family, our children, our parents, whoever we are around, that is our neighbor. And there are all sorts of ways that we can spend more time serving them and less time serving ourselves. And when we have less to spend by giving it away on our own intemperance, when we give kindness in response to anger, when we help our neighbor instead of serving ourselves, we are guarding, healing, and training our souls for the difficult battle of this world. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to do that and to continue your path closer and closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.